In a land far away, once upon a time, Brendan, Vicky B, partners in crime. We danced through life like, like a couple of gays. But as time went by, we went our separate ways. Now we're back together, talking about whatever. Talking about the music that, that we, we love forever. Hooking you up like a telephone jack. Everybody listen up, we're getting back on track. Welcome to Back on Track. This is Brendan. And this is Miss Vicky B. You know what I should have said? Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today. Oh my Everyone, <laughs> it, the, the world has just been upside down about the recent news of Prince's passing. Prince's passing, yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, as you can imagine, I'm completely destroyed. It's really, this has been a really tough week for me. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, we've been contemplating some sad topics on this show and in our own friendship. And obviously, death has been sort of front and center this year in a lot of ways. And I think what's really fascinating is no matter if it's a close family member, the closest of family members, or uh, a cultural icon, there's this sense of uh, the person's going to be there every day, so you don't always think about them. And then all of a sudden, the absence just brings all of this flooding of, of attention right to the surface. Absolutely. Well, this was completely unexpected. Everybody, I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, it's get compared constantly with Michael Jackson, who we lost recently in 2009, but he didn't appear to be deteriorating. We, you know what I mean? There wasn't a slow removal from the public eye. He's, he's doing concerts. He's over in um, Australia doing his piano and a microphone concert. And then the next thing you know, he, he's left us. He's gone. And, and he was cremated like the next day. I mean, he has literally left the earth. And Very quick. A, a cultural pillar has disintegrated like overnight. And everybody, it, we've, it's a profound loss, a profound loss. Yeah. And it's interesting because we're sort of shuffling things around on this show. I think, you know, for Vicky, uh, for those who don't know, Prince is, true inspiration. Yeah. And this has always been a show that we've wanted to do. The truth of the matter is, for me, I've always respected Prince's place in music and in culture and had a deep, tremendous respect for what he brought um, to humanity. But I I never really in, engaged in a deep way with his work. And I think I want to talk about that a lot on this show today um, as we sort of dive in to, to talk about who he was and what he, what he offered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I've been soaking it up since I was a baby in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've showed Brendan before the show a lot of our his album art and, and the booklets inside, the liner notes, the CD, the package design. These are artifacts for me. And literally, you can see Vicky in, in every and single everything. booklet. Yeah, in yeah. the, the way that he <laughs> it's crystal clear. puts his name on his clothing and the, 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 the yeah. designs, the, the risks that he's taking, the colors, the atmosphere that he's creating um, I really absorbed all of that those were like my storybooks when I was younger and it, it, it was really like a mythology that was laid out for me that I was pining through and searching for the um, the details and the messages and all of that I was really my satellite was really turned to all that as a kid and I'm trying to figure out you've you've tried in the past to introduce me you know to Prince and you made an amazing you know uh mix CD at one point and I, I probably gave it frankly one full listen and then didn't really revisit it again. Um, and there's something about his, 
uh, his image and his and his work that I, I don't know I don't know what it is, but there was something about it that kind of scared me. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's too real, if it's breaking the rules, if it's just so queer um, and, and and not normative. It, it was just uh, there was something about it that I was like, oh, I don't know what this is about, and. Um, I was I never dove in. I don't know. And conversely, like on the other side of the coin, th- there was something about it to me that yes, it was scary, but there was also parts of it that really spoke to me. A lot For of the, sure. A lot of the elements that I brought, I kind of tried to organize my mix CD for you into sort of uh, groups by elements of the things that I related to, uh-huh. and and um. A lot of those elements spoke to me. And on top of that, I want to say that what we tried to do here with Back on Track, we're trying to create, um, we're trying to create thoughtful content. We're trying to have philosophical discussions. And a lot of times that involves us talking about people that are celebrities, people that are public figures. And I think you and I are very conscious of making sure that we, we let our listeners know that we're not trying to think of these people as, as if they owe us something or as if they are figments of our imagination that you, you know what I mean? They're real people. But a lot of what we do is sort of project our hopes and dreams and fears onto them and a lot of the reactions that we have to their albums and their movies and their songs are really just revealing of deeper things within ourselves. Absolutely. And you that's know? really what art is. It's what you're bringing to this other creative work that's happening. Totally. And that totally. blend, for sure. And, you know, and, and to that end, we're not going to be speculating about what brought him, you know, to his to his eventual end. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be going there. However, I do want to talk really openly and candidly about some of his perspectives and views on yeah. copyright and, um, and, you know, how he could really control his environment and his music. I think that's some really interesting um, elements of who he was and the legacy he's going to end up having. Yeah, yeah. Well, where everybody really takes a start with him always winds up being Purple Rain. Absolutely. His film from 1984, starring in it, it really made him and the group of people that he was hanging out with at the time, they launched into Global Superstar. I read something recently. I've been trying to immerse myself since his death to prepare for this uh, episode. And I read something that... um, he actually had written into his first music contract that he would have the ability to star in a film, even though he had, had never had that experience before. It was something that he absolutely uh, targeted and that wanted. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, he was always shooting for the moon. I mean, mm-hmm. his his tours, his videos, everything that he did was larger than life. What did you think of Purple Rain? How old were you when you saw Purple Rain? I, I don't even know. I didn't really realize it existed until probably 10 years after it had been around. Right. I thought it was cool, but I didn't start getting into Prince until the early 90s. So it, it was like we were backtracking. Have you point. watched Purple Rain more recently? Not, um, I would say the last time I watched it is probably about 10 years ago. I love it. I think what's really moving, and I'm going to start talking about it from this angle, is the scene work with his family and with him trying to break up the fights between his mother and his father. Right. He was named after his father. His father was a Minneapolis jazz musician, and he started a band called the Prince Rogers Trio. Um, that was named after Prince, his son, um, or his son was named after the trio, I think. Yeah, I think that's how it was. And I think what I read, uh, it was that he, basically the, the, the father, that was his stage name, his professional name. Right. And right. he wanted, yes. he wanted Prince, his son, to be everything that he, 
it couldn't be. Sure, yeah. Well, his his music career had right. started to fail on him, and Prince showed a, an aptitude for music at a really early age. The first song that he was playing on the piano was the Batman theme, and actually, Prince like the sixties Batman, yeah, the yeah, yeah. So he's done a lot of pulling his father's work into his own work, and the first song that I want to talk about is from Purple Rain, and it's called Computer Blue. Brendan, yes. I don't know if you knew this, but there's sort of like a B section. It's not the bridge, but it's sort of like the the middle point before you get to the big crescendo with the guitar solo and the screaming, where it goes into a softer, uh, like a, a the the tempo changes, the key changes, and it goes into this uh, version called uh, Father's Song. Okay, and it's from the soundtrack. the The character in the movie of his father is playing it on the piano. His father, John L. Nelson, wrote that part of the song. That's so incredible. he worked it into this song. Mm-hmm. There's so much rage wrapped up in it, and there's so much emotion wrapped up in it. Um, the struggle that was going on was built right into the music for this. What's the meaning of the title? I don't. I, I don't know. It was just something that he picked. It was an untitled piece of music that he pulled into this, and and for some reason he felt like it captured the emotion or the the feeling of the moment um you know there's all of those fights you know uh between his mother and father in the movie and he's Mm -hmm. getting kicked out i guess he was kicked out at a really young age and so it was a really tumultuous relationship there was there was violence they came from a position of poverty and you know he has pushed back a little i was watching an interview from 99 he you know he didn't do a ton of press Mm -hmm. but this was the larry king interview that maybe you've seen yeah um from 1999 and he he definitely pushed back a little bit on the notion that it was autobiographical yeah not fully autobiographical yeah yeah so but there was tumultuousness i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure he doesn't want people just to think it was literal he didn't live with one parent for for very long he was volleying back and forth Mm -hmm. and for a while he was living with his best friend andre simone who they you know they started the band together um and and jimmy jam was in the same high school i think i'd read that that wouldn't surprise me yeah that's crazy they were in the same uh you know music group uh, not group but the same class or something in high school he always kept people in his local area close to him and always featured them prominently he chose from people that were close to him and and turned them into international superstars well back to computer blue yeah you had sent me a link to a, a specific live performance and um i was really having a good time watching it the other day and one of the things that's also interesting about prince is his physicality and his sexuality and the way he plays with gender and in a way that uh, is uh, luring to people it's some that you would think that maybe it wouldn't be but mm-hmm. it's a really hot performance is what i'm getting to he's yeah. got his shirt off and he has a mask over his eyes and um it's super yeah sexy. he's sweating he's screaming he's flipping yeah. out people didn't know what the hell to make of yeah. it you know another example of him using his gender and his sexuality you know crossing borders and things like that and also incorporating his father's music one of my favorite songs from the batman soundtrack in 1989 this is scandalous scandalous Dreamed of, willing to be. 
Oh my gosh, and talk about another amazing visual and a hot visual. The video, yeah. he, this is the video, right? I don't think I'm messing this up, where he's just got the red, red. sleeveless, I think it's a sleeveless suit or something, and it's just all black with a microphone. With a microphone. Oh my god, you know me and a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, this was uh, epic. Incorporating physicality, just like before, um, sexuality, and not gender-specific arm movie. He's doing whatever comes to him organically. Yeah, the song and is it's beautiful. intense. And, and the song is incredibly romantic. Yes. Inc- the words are incredibly warm and beckoning. Well, and before we pull back, talk about the father connection that so, we introed with. Uh, this is a quintessential example of him using um, – It's his father is co-credited uh, as a co-writer on this song. So he used a melody that da-da-da-da-da. Um, and he worked it into the song that he crafted out of it. So, And it also Danny Elfman worked that theme theme into the love theme right. of the score of the original first Tim Burton Batman. Well, that's what's so amazing when you when you talk about, I mean, there's this song and there's just the whole Batman album in general. Mm-hmm. What an incredible opus yeah. <laughs> that is. Um, so cool and different and the first of its kind, really. Really the first of its kind. And I was thinking um, how just fascinating it is when you look at all of Prince's visuals and the language he'd been building his career on. And, you, and, and then obviously Tim Burton has a very specific aesthetic as well. But there really is this merging when you sort of rewatch Batman through the lens of Prince. You, I, I, I don't know, maybe you do at what point Prince was involved in the process, but it is like the perfect synthesis of Absolutely. those those two artists. I'm guessing that the connection was probably Warner Brothers because yeah. that was his record label. So, you know, and he was at a time in the late 80s and the early 90s where he was using his studio, like his multi, you know, media complex that he had built in the late 80s. In Minnesota. Yeah, in Minnesota to be filming movies, to be inviting other artists in to produce tracks for them. They're recording. It's amazing they, he has a full soundstage there. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he filmed uh, he filmed Graffiti Bridge, the, the sequel to Purple Rain in, in Paisley Park. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it, something tells me it had, you know, there was people behind the scenes that connected them, and he had always had an affinity for Batman, that being his the first song that he learned, and well, he jumped right into it. And then when I think of the soundstage, the video for Bat Dance. For Bat Dance. Oh, my God. Can we talk about that for two Go, seconds? Yeah. It's just, I think, wasn't it, um, wasn't it Barry Lather who did the choreography? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you just, for, for people who haven't watched it, this is immediate viewing. Pause and go watch because you've got, you know, all of these Batmans and all of these Vicky Vales and all of these Jokers. And there's just this, you know, incredible choreography going on. It's so of its time. I don't think that video could ever exist in any other moment in history. It's true. It is really wacky. Yeah. And even the song itself, Bat Dance, is such an unexpected hit. It took off. It really was. And you could never predict that would happen. It's basically all instrumental with random either clips from the film, audio clips from the film, or other sort of sound effects where a couple Prince vocals you know, shoved in. But it's just a wacky yeah. all over the map, uh, kind of scary, quirky song. Yeah. It was derived from a song that was called 200 Balloons. And I don't know if you remember, but in that movie, the Joker goes on a parade through uh, the city I remember. with all the balloons, right? Because <laughs> it was Gotham's, I think it was 200th anniversary yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And he took the beat from that and it was like a remix to 200 Balloons. Um, and it, it turned into this sleeper hit, like all of a sudden a big gigantic club number one from out of nowhere. Um, 
And all of a sudden, Prince is now a dance music star. It was number one yeah. in the dance charts. It, not only that, I remember at that age, you know, being in jazz classes yep. as a kid and how many of my, uh, you know, friends would do, you know, student choreography to bat dance. Mm-hmm. It was like Acro all numbers. over the place. Acro numbers left oh and right. Gosh. Yeah. Well, he has, uh, the dance community has followed him and have yeah. had their ear to, you know, to, to the tracks for him for years. You know what I mean? So that was no surprise for me. And the, uh, there's one other thing about Scandalous that I was noting too, and this is sort of again about some of the issues that we hinted at at the beginning around copyright and ownership. But I mm-hmm. think um, because of the, the licensing issues with Batman and he wasn't able to include those songs on, the, on his albums and whatnot, I think um, whenever the uh, whenever his work was listed on you know merchandise or things like that, he renamed the Batman work Scandalous. Scandalous, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was re- yeah he he they weren't able to put it on his greatest hits albums. So whenever you get one of those like Ultimate Prince albums or right. any of the ones that Warner Brothers put out with all of those comprehensive Prince collections, the Batman songs are omitted. You can still get it on iTunes, right? But but as a standalone album. Yep, yep, yep. But you can't get those songs as individually, like, in, in the greatest hits package. So. And before we shift gears, the one other thing I also want to just add from just this moment where we're in a superhero film uh, hyper crazy mode where it feels <laughs> like there's just constant superhero films coming out. Back at the time, you'd had the series of Superman films that were finally successful because previous to the Christopher Reeves, Richard Donner Superman films, those hadn't, that genre just hadn't really been very successful. Mm-hmm. And then those were, you think of the score for those films, it's John Williams and it's this epic, all American, prestigious, yeah. uh, kind of very regal feeling. Yeah, very regal. Mm-hmm. Um, well, funny prince with royalty, but, um, but yeah, very regal and then you have this shift to Batman and it's darker and you have the funk of Prince and and I don't know that in hindsight maybe people really appreciate how weird and cool this was yeah well Batman <laughs> is all about introspection it's about darkness yeah. and about duality yeah. and Prince is a Gemini and he's his work is constantly about yeah. the constant duality between sexual ecstasy and religious ecstasy about the the battle that's going on within one man's soul. The character that he personified through that whole Batman um, album, uh, what is it called? An, an album uh, trajectory. Cycle? An album cycle was uh-huh. called Gemini and he was half kind of normal prince right. and half the Joker. And yep. it was really kind of weird and disturbing. But the Joker wears purple and he's crazy and Prince is jumping off pianos and at parties and swilling drinks and things like that. So it's like the duality of like him being a loving, caring, you know, wrap my arms around the world type of guy and then also being completely unhinged and sexual and out of control. So I thought it was oddly, weirdly right in line with it. It was. It was perfect. It was just this inspired perfect combination. Yeah. Where should we shift to next? Well, okay. I want to talk about some of his his more romantic songs, mm-hmm. songs, the songs that we love by him that were, some of them were hits, some of them weren't. <laughs> the first one I want to talk about, 17 Days. blurb about this. This was a B-side to When Doves Cry, which is a smash hit from Purple Rain. Um, Like a lot of the songs in the day, it was originally intended for a girl group that he was producing, Vanity Six. Right. Um, Vanity and and his relationship dissolved. He replaced her with Apollonia for the, the... 
the Purple Rain movie. And is this is this urban legend or is it true that the six is because there were six breasts in the I group? I think that's probably what yeah. he was hinting. <laughs> he always had secret like double entendres for yeah. everything. Yeah. Um and it bears mentioning that a lot of the a lot of the songs that he produced and sung in his own voice were sometimes written from the female perspective. And a lot of the reason some of the reason why he would sing in the upper octave in his falsetto is because the songs were intended for a female or he just got used to singing in that way if he wanted to sound a certain way. And a lot mm-hmm. of what he does that makes his music so um, layered and rich is he he transposes um, or or layers his lower register with his falsetto on top of each other. Right. So you get this crazy rich, richness and these crazy harmonies. You this know? range is really dynamic. It's, it's really insane. powerful. For me, as a as a an observer, sort of coming in, not having followed along over all the years, there's certain there's certain songs that are just that cut to the core for me that I find his voice tonally and, and the color of it incredibly beautiful. Then there's other um, uh, applications, if you will, of his voice that mm-hmm. uh, that I find um, eh, a little less. Appealing. Sometimes they're even dissonant, dissonant yeah. and disturbing and challenging. Yeah, and I think that that's also like. On the rain, range of emotions sure. that as an artist you're trying to you're, he's trying to scream and explore and go to different places that nobody has ever gone before and use his voice as an instrument that is uniquely his own in a way in ways that people haven't done it before he was always concerned with breaking boundaries and f- exploring new territories going on to the next thing yeah. you know what i mean so where i it wasn't always completely you know warm and fuzzy and cozy comfortable for me but it, i could relate to what he was trying to convey through through his vo- vocalizations. And how did you discover this song in particular, 17 Days? Or why was it? I got it. I, so they, in 1993, they put out a great hits, hits package, uh, Warner Brothers did, and it had all of his hits up to that point. Um, and then as a bonus, the third, the third CD was a B-side CD, and it mm-hmm. had all of the B-sides for all of his singles. Which is like point. your heaven, I'm well, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and in, in the liner notes, you can read the stories behind like how these songs are created, wh- like what year they were recorded in, why he chose to put it in, why it made the cut, why he didn't make the cut. And I always just love this song because it's so emotive and, and it's, it's just like nothing compares to you. This a song about having lost somebody and like being alone in the rain and like being down and, and singing about it and putting it mm-hmm. into music. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Another song I'd like to talk about that it's about relationships is from his 1990 film Graffiti Bridge. The name mm-hmm. of the song is The Question of You. So the clip that I've given you guys is a really emotive guitar solo. Have, did, did you listen to the clip? Yeah, absolutely. And I, yes, absolutely. And it's interesting with, you mentioned the guitar solos, because in general, I don't know that they are really beautiful. I don't know that without knowing how much you love Prince, I would necessarily expect you to connect so much with, with, with that kind of music and with, with the guitar. What is it about that that, that drives you? I don't know. I, I, he has a soul that he puts through, you know, the, the, 
the guitar is an extension of his body and he puts him, you, you can look at his face when he's playing it. He's making all kinds of weird, you know, expressions and it's like, it's coming out of him. And I can really feel him put that kind of emotion. Yeah. He's wondering what the hell is going on with this woman. What, how do I get inside her? You know, what do I have to do? So this song, it was an outtake from the 1985 sessions for the parade album, which was the soundtrack to the Under the Cherry Moon film. That was his follow up to Purple Rain. It was an otherwise commercially unsuccessful film. Um, but the story was about a, a, a pair of star-crossed lovers. Prince plays a gigolo in the movie yep. um, who finally finds that woman that makes him put his past behind him and realize what the truth is and realize what love is. And um, I love the music from this movie. It's all very atmospheric. He starts working with this composer named Claire Fisher, who the two of them had never met before, but Claire had been sending Prince all of this orchestration, all of this work, and it would come in these collage forms back at him on these tracks in unexpected <laughs> places. You know what I mean? It was like a Kanye West type of Absolutely. thing. Where, where, um, and so the Parade album is full of stuff like that. And this just happens to be an outtake from that that showed up later on on Graffiti Bridge. A lot of dances to this song. I've seen ice dances to this song. I've seen so many competitions to this song. It's bluesy. I, I love the blues. And his own performance of this song is striking. I mean, yeah. he'll go from the piano, then to the guitar. Then in one of the clips I was watching, he's, you know, uh, he's got these set pieces with these poles that he's dancing around and then and, and, and climbing on. And it's just the, the range of what he could do there is really mind blowing. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, phenomenal. He's right up there with Madonna and Michael Jackson in terms of like the arena rock show. Theatrics are always part of his show. Dance and choreography have always been part of his show. Visuals have been and just as And you don't think important. of him. You think of some of the women and we've talked about, um, we've talked about some of them already. I know we're probably going to dive into your favorite shortly, mm-hmm. but, um, you think of some of the women in his repertoire and his company as being real movers and dancers, but until, again, this last week and just watching a lot more of his material, I don't know that I would have necessarily – I always thought he had, he could move, but it's been really fun to see how much of a dancer he was. Yeah, yeah. He was he was always getting right down and in it himself. Yeah. And, you know, aside from just doing the James Brown split stuff and, right. all, and all of that, all of the physicality of that and jumping off things, it was always very important to him to have a visual representation and manifestation to go along with – Lots of strong it's, pelvis work. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He was influenced highly by folks. You know, James Brown just keeps coming to mind. Yeah. But I mean, like, there's an amazing clip of him on stage with James Brown and, and Michael Jackson at the same time. Oh, which wow. Which is insane. If you have a chance to watch it on YouTube, you should definitely check it out. Well, you mentioned Kanye West, and it was interesting. And just in this back and forth he was having with this other artist. And it makes me – and we don't have to stay here. But mm-hmm. it makes me want to talk a little bit about – one of the things that perplexes me is how much he wanted to control the the use of his music by other creative people. Um, that I never quite understood why he. I don't know why he had such a um, what's the word uh, repulsion almost to yeah. uh, to other people sort of taking his work and doing something with it. I think uh, he described his songs as his children, and they're and they're you know when he first puts them out into the world, they're in their infant stages, and they grow over time. They evolve into different things, and I sure. think as an artist, you and I both can relate to having our work being interpreted by some somebody else and possibly misinterpreted. Or in the generation that we grew up in, there being a lot of hip hop, there was a lot of sampling going on, and a lot of times with sampling, you 
can recontextualize a song. Absolutely. And sometimes it can be taken as either supporting or contrasting the message of the song that it's being put into. Sure. He, I don't think he, I think he wanted to make sure that the artist was respecting him and his original vision for the song. I think a lot of it had to do with respect, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, and also not being his, him being in control of his own narrative. These are little snippets of his narrative and his story that, you know, you, I, I'm going to let my son go over to your house and, 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 and you're going to babysit him for the, you know, you could, right. you could mess him up. You know? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I, I think that's why that's clearly, I think the way he looked at it. Yeah. I just, um, for me, it's always, it's a little bit, I don't know. It's a little bit disappointing. Yeah. It's a little bit. I, would... I wish that, you know, you create something and, and, for me, it's art, it's music, it's whatever it is. You create it and it's in the universe and then it gets to live on in its own way. And I think that that need to control and own, um, I, I would imagine that's a very – that's a lot of pressure and a difficult thing to live with, frankly. To live with and bear. I would imagine yeah. it, it created a lot of undue suffering well, for him. Well, sure. I'm, you know, he had, at, toward the end, he had a team of lawyers that were going, combing through YouTube and right. trying to, to, to tear it all down and things like that. I don't know. I think he was trying to be – to stand by his principle. And it's really tough. But, you know, we're having this conversation right now. Absolutely. And it's an important, a hugely important conversation to have about what's, you know, what's in the public – you know what is what is it the, the the public venue, the public domain, the public domain. I guess for me philosophically, I believe, and there are great scholars and academics who can speak much more intelligently about this than I can. But mm-hmm. I essentially believe in the the power of remixing, and that all art is essentially remixing. All art is recontextualizing inspiration in new ways, and so the and so I just. I, I hope that whomever is controlling his estate, and I've, I've read he doesn't have a will or didn't have a will, um, but I hope that there is some ability to sort of let him live on in, in, in a, in a real living way where people can continue to use his work and it's not just sort of museumified where we have to look at it behind a glass wall and it can't be touched yeah. because I, I that to, to me is just, that's kind of sad. I tend, I tend to agree with that as well. I mean, I, I think the other side of the coin is that, y- what they did with Michael Jackson's catalog and like all of the, you know, all of the, they've released all of the like the acapella vocal tracks and every, every last person is remixing and they're, and they're doing Cirque du Soleil shows and they're doing live concert tours without him and thing. And I feel like, you know, I don't want there to be a dance, dance revolution Prince game. I really don't. I mean, <laughs> no, I just think, and I don't think he would want to either. I, I understand, I, w- I can, I can relate to wanting to open it up to everybody, but I do, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't want it to be exploitation. That's what I'm concerned with. And that's why all of the tracks that I've chosen here today, they're all available commercially. You can get them. If not on iTunes, you can go, you know, online and buy them. Amazon, you can go to a record store, which he was very, he was very, you know, enthusiastic. God forbid we have brick and mortar record record stores. Yeah. Well, you know, that's where he was. Well, let's get back on track and talk about it. We could keep going. All all right. So, so he did a lot of play with masculine and feminine. I think I argue that a lot of what he was doing with his gender bending style and the heels and the jewelry and the accessories, all of the color play he was doing, the fit of the of the pants and his hair and makeup, he was frequently challenging gender norms. Oh my gosh. And doing it in a non-ironic way. 
totally you know not I mean? ironic. The, there was this amazing article recently um, in the New York Times since his death that was uh, chronicling how he basically was able to make men in heels happen. And then mm-hmm. just the way you say it, in a totally legit, everyone took it seriously kind of way. And you know, for me personally, as a lover, lover, lover of men wearing heels, um, it, it's so fun to flip back and look through all the ways he was able to pull those looks off. Yeah. Um, it, it makes me want to, I don't know, dive in myself. Well, one <laughs> wonderful example and one of yes. my favorite visual examples of this is in the 1987 Sign of the Times second single, If I Was Your Girlfriend. Brandon, you might yeah. remember it. Do you remember this? Do you remember I mean, TLC covering this on Crazy Sexy Cool? Oh my they gosh. Yeah, oh my gosh. Remember? A little now that they, you say it. He must have got his permission. <laughs> Clearly, I guess so. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I yeah. didn't even connect those dots. Yeah. What was your first reaction to this song? Well, just what you were saying about the gender play. It was um, really interesting to think about what his perspective was as the as the singer, as the artist, as he's you know writing and singing these words. And um, I guess I was struck by how effortless yeah. um, this was. Well, and one... I think maybe it's because it's authentic, it, and you could you can feel and hear that authenticity, so you don't have to question it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he was trying to get down to, you know, asking the question, not even about switching gender, but about what would our relationship be like if we were intimate on a level where you didn't worry about what my gender was. Well, right. If we treated each other just like we were girlfriends. Right. What would that kind of intimacy be like? We didn't have like? the, frankly, the, the sort of the bullshit of Binary. culture gender. Yeah. Correct. And, and, and the roles that were conditioned to play. Yeah. Well, yeah. so touching on that, it's always been, it struck me that it's always been important to him to have females in his bands. And so, I mean, up to the day that he died, his band Third Eye Girl was exclusively female. Um, now, it is interesting as we talk about though, that, though, and uh, that I do feel like he... Uh, and I don't say this necessarily in a bad way, but I do feel like he objectified the female image um, in a way that he didn't with the male image. That might be true. Yeah, well, it's tough because at the end of the day, he was a straight man. Totally. And let's face it, he did have relations with 90% of the women and that, was that his he experience. worked with. Absolutely. Right. But I can also relate to the females because it's sort of like you're around this amazing special guy who's so in touch with both sides of his gender and he's comfortable with himself. How could you not fall in love with him? Yeah. And everybody, you know, all of the TV interviewers are always asking, what was it like? Is he weird? Is he this or the that? It's like, no, it's the truth. It's like he's actually really comfortable. So I want to do a a brief rundown of a lot of the female musicians just to give a shout out to them. Um, Starting with the first chick in his band, Lisa Coleman, extending to Wendy Melvoin, Sheila E. on percussion, Sheena Easton, Kat Glover, Candy Dulfer, who he always had on saxophone, Rosie Gaines, who was part of the New Power Generation, a singer, songwriter, and pianist in her own right, Carmen Electra, who he he gave her name, Nona Gay, Marvin Gaye's daughter on vocals, Rhonda Smith and the bass, legendary bass player, Shaq 
Chaka Khan he worked with later in his life, Bria Valente, Esperanza Spalding, Janelle Monet he played in her last album, and finally with his band Third Eye Girl. And that's just the tip of the iceberg right. of women that he was associated with. Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles. Oh my gosh. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. Even worked with Sheryl Crow. Yeah. There was probably I mean, Stevie Nicks. He, yeah, you know, Stevie on Stand Nicks. Back. Yeah. It just goes on and on and on. So the no, next song that I want to mention is very much in in line with this idea of the women being in, in control, women being their own bosses. It's called Key Control. I don't know what P stands for. <laughs> they don't call it P in the song. <laughs> they certainly do not. And it's like refrained over and over and over again. But it's awesome. Okay. The second single from 1995's The Gold Experience. The reason why I included this is because touching on all this gender play, the cross-dressing that he had Maite come out and do on the VH1 Fashion Awards. Yeah. Where she came out in the purple in the suit. the iconic purple suit. The iconic. Everybody thought it was him. Does a turn. All the stuff that he usually does. And then tears it off. And it's Maite in like a red bikini with thigh highs can you see how excited I am yes. right now <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and it's god. just a hot number and so, and then it's he comes really out it's really bold and um, it's pretty intense it's pretty intense yeah, right yeah. you come out do, to a fashion show a fashion crowd a highbrow nose in the air fashion crowd and do pussy control with my tan <laughs> bikini and you're posing between your le- her legs on a gun mic that is gangster yeah that is gangster yeah and it really making it's really putting a mirror up to people and making them deal with what's actually going on I think too well, yeah well th- another cool thing is that the song is talking about a woman who has been exploited for her sexuality but dis- but goes out and gets an education and steps on the neck of all the people that tried well, to get that's in her my way. point all these people are watching these models literally before and after the number yeah. you know modeling all of these clothes and then I'm saying he comes out and is like how about this how about and this? shoves this in their face absolutely yeah. and they probably still had no idea what the hell they I'm were sure. looking at yeah. anyway it's a wonderful segue to be able to talk about his former wife who I'm obsessed with Maite yeah. Garcia the two of them met at a concert in Germany in 1990. His mom... I mean, I've been hearing you talk about Maite for... Forever. 15 years. And so much of my look <laughs> and my persona as Vicky B was based on Maite because I just felt like she was this, this beautiful personification of femininity and womanhood and grace through dance, through ballet that she was trained in in Germany, through belly dance from Egypt. She was She's worldly. Um, and just knock out, knock down, drag out beautiful. I really feel like I subconsciously crafted my visual imagery of who I was in my drag persona as a prince girl. Well, it's you so interesting I mean? that like the public, I really feel like got to know her as more of that Egyptian character as mm-hmm. that's how she can, you know, came to the forefront. And it seemed like from what I was reading, it was kind of a thing that she revealed she was Puerto Rican. Was it a thing? I mean, I guess so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Up until that point, she was this sort of mysterious creature from the, um, the accompanying video to the symbol album um, Three Chains of Gold where mm-hmm. she was an Egyptian princess guarding the three chains of Turin which were you know it, there was a whole big story he, yep. it, it, nothing was small he, he made a, his <laughs> album the symbol album which I love and which is one of my most favorite albums by him also commercially not very successful um, from 1992 Seven was from that that mm-hmm. album um, was like a rock opera and actually, one of my favorite songs is from that rock opera, and it's about Maite, and the name of the song is The Morning Papers. They could take a walk down the ocean side They could wish on every wave They could find a carousel and ride 
I loved discovering this song. I had never heard it before. Um, I mean, I probably heard it years ago when you made me that beautiful CD that I ignored. Um, <laughs> this week, um, I've listened to that song quite a few times, actually. Yeah. It's gorgeous. There's a there's a really wonderful lyric in it, and if I could just boil it all down to this. He asks, why is age more than a number when it comes to love? Should we ask the ones who speculate when they don't know what it's made of? Should we ask the moonlight on your face or the raindrops in your hair? Or should we ask the man who wrote it? there in the morning papers you know what i mean yeah are we like are we going to worry about loving each other because of what people might think about us or what they might write about us and and like is love something that's been created culturally or is it something that's real between us yeah you know and what i also love about this song is that you get that real singer songwriter quality that you know is a little bit different than some of his funk rock stuff it feels um it it just feels so honest and 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 uh Vulnerable, yeah, really it's a vulnerable. Beautiful, beautiful song, and I can really feel it. And that's one one of the reasons why it's one of my most favorite. And he doesn't play it anymore, pro- presumably, probably because it's about her. Well, right. Um, but it deeply, you can tell that it's deeply personal and endearing to hear him being so defiant and declare that he's not going to lodge their their age difference, which he was twice her a- her age at the time, um, to be a taboo. You know, she started working with. What him were they? Fifteen years apart. She was like, yeah, at sixteen years apart. I think. Okay. I think she she joined the NP and she was about 16 years old. Wow. You know, so... That is a little scandalous it is, to go back. But, <laughs> but he, he, in one of his songs, he says, I would never pick the flower of my favorite protege. Um, I remember meeting you here back in the good old days. Maybe if I would have, then you may not have treated me this way. He didn't... He held off before involving himself in a physical relationship with her where he might have in other situations pumping out albums for all of his protégés but he didn't with her he waited they corresponded over a long period of time before they engaged romantically he did wait which I think is really also very beautiful this whole thing is a it's a fairy tale for me it was a fairy tale for me it was difficult to see them separate but so moving through the stages of their relationship the next song that I want to talk about which takes them to the next level is a beautiful song from his Emancipation album in 1996. It's called The Holy River. When I see that picture upon the wall, the one I stare in, that nothing at all. My eyes trying to focus, but these are much different tears. Oh, yes, they are. Let's go down to the Holy River. Let's go down to the Holy River. Let's go down to the Holy River. So, Brenda, did you did you listen to this song, The Holy River? Yes, of I'm course just, I listened to The Holy I'm River. I'm curious about your reactions to all of this because it's also new to you and I feel like I'm... It I'm is new. I'm really like, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to absorb pull. all of it. It's yeah. a lot. It's a huge catalog of work. Mm-hmm. Um what I want to say about this song, it, I feel like it speaks to his loneliness and his isolation in his persona of Prince the Superstar. Um, was this in fo- – this was – this the Holy River was following the tragedy they had had? It was right before it. Oh, it was he, before. He wrote it and uh, was ironically releasing this single as it was happening. Oh, Yeah, so he's wow. writing this song about – 
engaging in increasingly self-destructive behavior, unproductive patterns, hanging out with all the wrong people and all the wrong places until the decision to marry the love of his life, Maite, on Valentine's Day in 96 resulted in like a spiritual enlightenment for him. He, he said on Oprah that Maite made it feel easier for him to talk to God. Wow. So he had an epiphany. And this song is sort of like the, the musical manifestation mm-hmm. of this epiphany. Mm-hmm. Um, going down to the Holy River, going to the center of it all, getting to the truth, um, carrying on, you know, emancipation. Also, this is an amazing milestone for him because it was his first full album completely free of the Warner Brothers contract. And it was a declaration of his freedom from the shackles of his creative slavery. Um, and I think that most of this album feels so celebratory because he was finally free. He was starting a family. He was newly, mm-hmm. newly married. Um, and this song is just such a beautiful expression of his connection to God and his connection to his family. You know, his connection to God is so interesting. How did you absorb that as a, as a kid? Did that resonate with you or was it? I didn't realize what I was listening to at the time. I definitely felt the spiritual element to what he was singing about. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of dualities, like I said, with the Gemini character and also like back in the eighties, the idea of love, sexy and spooky electric, sort of like, um, sonic expressions of deities good and bad um also prince and camille like prince is his normal character and camille is the 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 sped up um the higher note uh, some of his some oh. of his songs he actually did in this character called camille oh wow i didn't um, know that the whole black album is done mostly in the camille character um and even this movie graffiti bridge which is in itself a a, a playing out of the spiritual battle of of, of a man's soul it played out via the struggle for ownership over two clubs. One of them is playing sort of um, secular, popular, you know, top 40 music and Prince is playing spiritual stuff that quote unquote, nobody wants to hear. And his girlfriend leaves him and the, the, the club, uh, you know, attendance is dwindling and people are telling him to hang it up. You know, and you're watching this on film. This is in graffiti bridge, his 1990 follow up to, uh, to purple rain. Um, I could feel that it was like he was fighting for something. He was exploring and trying to, trying to express, um, a battle going on within himself and right. trying to figure out what the truth was, you know, like trying to talk about God and about spirituality. It was this the same, was tell. this the same, um, era when he, um, when he abandoned his name to, to identify as the love symbol? It was approaching it. It was, it was approaching, approaching it. Because yeah. I was listening to this interview where he was, you know, talking about, uh, how much that shifting was, a, was also a very spiritual experience for him. And, and it was about turning his creativity to God and, and turning not away from the celebrity, but choosing to, to make the, the spiritual, uh, component of that work the priority. Manifest. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Well, yeah, he always referred to this idea of knowing your name, um, knowing who you are deeply on the inside. And when I talk to you about this, I think about the naming of cats and about how people, how cats have, you know, the the secular home name that you give them and the sort of deeper nickname that you and then beyond that, underneath all of that, the spiritual name that the cat himself knows and will never confess. Yeah. What your name really is, the name of your entity. And I think that he it was so brave of him and one of the reasons why I loved him so much is he took a symbol of his frustration and a creative idea that he'd been formulating for decades and and had the courage to tear down the label of his physical name Prince 
forego all of that and all the baggage and everything that was attached to that and say, I can still go on. I can still make music. I still am the entity, the person that I am inside and people will still follow me. This is going to be the truth. Yeah. And I don't even need a name. My name. Yeah. As a, as a kid watching this happen, as a teenager, um, I I found it so strange and a turnoff, frankly. Everybody but as did. an adult, a lot of people. Did. As an adult, I I now so respect that journey. I mean, it, it, it's it's really incredible it's what really he was able beautiful. to achieve. He was extremely spiritual. So I want I want I'd like to talk about some of his spiritual songs, if that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there was one song in particular where I, I feel like it was around the time of of him um, addressing his name. And yeah. maybe that's where you're going. Go, go ahead. Yeah. No, I don't know. It was the song you introduced me to called, um, well, let's just do this one. I don't know yeah. if it's the right time or not. It's called Solo. This song, I couldn't even believe this was Prince's voice as I was listening to it. That's what I was most struck by. I, at first, I, I kept, I was doing some research on the song as I was listening because I was thinking, is there, is there another vocal? Or and then, I, and then I quickly realized, no, this is all him. So many times I've been listening to Prince albums, and I'm like, is this him singing? Yeah. Most of the Batman album, I was like, is that him singing? Uh, but yeah, a solo from 1994's "Come." Yes. The name of the album is Come. <laughs> Boom. If that's not if that's not a twist of the knife to the record company that he was trying to right? you know get behind him, I don't know what was. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that was during his battle for creative control. Um. At that time, he was going through this phase where he was killing off Prince. Right. And all I've showed you the booklet for this album, but it's very dark, black and white. A lot of the pictures are from his time in Spain. He's got a lot of heavy makeup on, and he's posing in front of these churches. It's all very brooding. And this was part of also him trying to. To quickly get out records to get out of his contract. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So this album was a, a compilation of a lot of he, you know, he referred to them as old tracks. But he teamed up with this this amazing harpist. His name is Devry, uh, David Henry Huang. Um, there's chilling thunderstorm effects in this track. Um, and the double meaning also solo as in like alone, but also solo. 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 The curb Absolutely. looks like a skyscraper. And at the end of this, mm. uh, I mean, like it just speaks so much to him, him, his creative stifling, hurting him physically and killing him. He's the last thing he says is my name is no one. And he just had a hit in 1992. My name is Prince. Yep. A declaration, a declaration of who the hell he was. And now he's saying, "My name is no one." And that's the last thing he says at the at the closing of. I mean, dramatic. Have right? you seen a live performance of this? No, I've never seen a live performance. Have you seen like anyone interpret it? A dancer? No, I, or anything? I, a friend of mine who is a dancer did a a solo to a solo it. to solo. Um, and allegedly, I I didn't, I wasn't able to. See it, but I heard about it, and he's also a big Prince fan, so nobody else could have done it better. But mm. I do love that song. That was a tough pe- uh, period for him, and that album, although ninety percent of it he said was throwaways, it still packed the emotional punch of what it was like to be a man struggling with somebody trying to control his artistry. You know, that yeah. song solo in particular, um, it reminds me, and we'll do a whole other episode someday about this, but mm-hmm. it reminds me of some of the tracks from George Michael's older album. Yeah. It has that kind of introspection and and really rich um, depth. 
Totally. There's so many things I want to talk about. I'd like to talk about his idea of the new power generation, yeah. um, the band that became such a big part of his life. Which feels like such an 80s communal thing, right? Yeah. Like, to have this, like, well, cast of characters. Rhythm and, Nation. Exactly. You know what I mean? And Madonna yeah. and her Vogers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the first song I'm going to talk about through this phase is the self-titled New Power Generation. So this is another song from Graffiti Bridge in 1990, second single, um, and it's the anthem of his backing band. They're a huge cast of characters. It's real myth building, right? Yeah, absolutely. But also, like, a bit of a spiritual idea as well. Yeah. You know, a return to the center. We're, we're, we're about new ideas. We're about generating new solutions. We're tired of the old ways. We're sick and tired of you telling what, us what to do. Um, and he wanted to surround himself with a team of people that were going to push the bounds further and further. It's amazing how he would, you know, you, you see it in really direct and obvious ways, like New Power Generation and all the other ways that we've been talking about with the different people he influenced and worked with. But the way he can create these communities and little clubs, is it's so cool. It's cool and infectious. And yeah. it felt like, I mean, I was reading X-Men comics at the time. And yeah. it really felt like akin to that. You know, you're seeing all the pictures of people and he's dressing them up in these clothes that are like, they're, they're variations on the theme of his stuff mm-hmm. you know they're in suits and they're in different colors and cuts and things like that and it's like they're their own little like squad of superheroes that are out to defy you know overcoming the odds to, dedicated to creativity and exploration and eliminating elements of negativity and, and close mindedness you know and I could I could just draw all of this out of that so I wonder what what sparked that that ability in him to, to sort of to do that, to be able to really, you know, to be a, a leader in this way that could bring people together around this vision. I mean, that's an amazing, I think it's just, I mean, he would probably call it a gift. Yeah. And well, yeah. And there's also a little bit, I mean, when he was on, um, when he was on American bandstand with Dick Clark and Dick Clark saying to him in uh, Minneapolis of all places, you know what I mean? And say, like, why not? Why couldn't, you know, why couldn't Jerome Benton down the street be, you know, be a, a, an amazing superhero superstar or, you know, do we Jimmy know a Jerome Jam- Benton? Jerome, Jerome Benton was in, uh, the time with oh, Morris got Day it. Okay, got and then it. joined him in his band. I didn't you know, know if like, you were just using the name Jerome Benton. Um, I'm just, I just threw out a name. But, you know, it's like we've got we don't need to go to L.A. or or New York or any of these places to be able to grab these. You know, we are we are the new power generation. Well, as we said before, the Minneapolis sound is all over our um, collective uh, conscious. There's (laughs) nothing that he doesn't have uh, uh, that he hasn't left his mark on. Yeah. Um, One more thing that I want to talk about. One more song, a beautiful song that I want to talk about was the third single from the Gold Experience back in 1995. The name of the song is Gold. Everybody wants to say what's already been sold Everybody wants to tell what's already been told What's the use of money if you ain't gonna break the mold Living at the center of the fire There is cold All that glitters ain't gold This song is real fun did you like it? Oh yeah, it, it, it's got it's it contrasts with some of the other uh, stuff we've been talking about for sure. sure. There's something um, almost uh, maybe this is not going to be the right 
uh, analogy or comparison, but almost like a more California um, uh, kind of upbeat West Coasty sound it's to it. It's very uplifting. Yeah, uh, he, he. But it's not an uplifting it. lyrical. Like you the lyrics aren't so? uplifting. Well, well, everybody. No. So the lyrics are everybody's trying to sell what's already been sold. Everybody is trying to tell what's already been told what's the use of money if you ain't going to break the mold even at the center of the fire it's cold mm-hmm. all that glitters ain't gold. ain't gold so no that is not uplifting to me i guess that is not. kind of a bitter song yeah. but the track is really up yeah it's it's tr- it's convincing people to to go the extra mile to find the truth and to get the quality amidst all of the mud and all of the distraction and the noise to, that's interesting to search for the, so you the took it as I, a call to action absolutely and and a hmm. begging of people to to go the extra mile to find yeah. to get to the bottom of to, to get to the quality amidst all of the the hullabaloo and the crap that's out there well that's, that's a great perspective that's what I took from it yeah I think you know? my 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 uh my novice, um, uneducated interpretation was that he was sort of venting about his frustration. That might very well be true. And listen, I, I happen to admire him a lot. And so there might be a certain amount of coloring that we're doing, but I have disagreements <laughs> with him as well every once in a while. But what, sure. oh, would you I, call him on the phone? <laughs> listen, I would, t- I would have talked to him. <laughs> Something interesting I want to say is at that time, speaking about what we were speaking, Lenny Kravitz voiced a, a pessimism uh, of the scene with his take uh, of of the ro- of rock and roll and where it was, and he he declared rock and roll is dead from his album 19, uh, uh, Circus in 1995, and Prince answered right back. Rock and roll is alive and it lives in Minneapolis. He created a song that was the B-side to gold. Oh, wow. So what was it like called? Rock and roll is alive That's and it called. lives in Minneapolis. That, wait, the song? That's the name of the fucking song. <laughs> That's right, amazing. Like, things, things are not dead. Rock and roll is not dead. Music is not dead. No. It's, it's alive. It's at the center. It's, you know what I mean? It's yeah. within all of us. Yeah. It's not about pessimism. It's not about, it's not about negativity. It's about the new power generation. It's about going back to the center and finding the truth in it all. I don't That's know. That's great. I, mean, like, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was deep. It's really spiritual. fun to see. It's really fun to see an experience Prince through your eyes and your lens. Well, and I feel like the tracks that I connected with of his were not always the big kiss 1999, you know, let's go crazy songs. They were this, the although prayers. those are fun. They are fun. And, li- and I mean, they, who doesn't love Little Red Corvette? They get the album sold, but I'm listening. I'm reading the liner notes and I'm listening to the poetry and I'm trying to pick up the meanings and the lessons that we're trying. You know what I mean? Like when RuPaul is blogging or Mariah Carey is talking about her experiences with her relationships and things like that. Yeah. We're tuned into what are we learning here? Yeah. You know what well, I mean? Well, it's so interesting you just mentioned Mariah. Carrie, one thing I wanted to talk about really quickly is Mm -hmm. it's interesting uh, when I say the lens of Prince for you and then sort of how I interpret it. Um, For two seconds, I want to talk about the beautiful ones. from Purple Rain going back to the beginning for a second but Mariah Carey and Drew Hill did a cover of this in 1997 on her Butterfly album and it was really fascinating for me because as, a, as not being a Prince aficionado I didn't know at first it was a Prince song until you know maybe uh, I don't know 
a couple listens later. I mean, mm-hmm. I found out back then, but it was a it definitely piqued my interest. And um, there was something about hearing his music through uh, an artist that I connected with personally that sort of opened up that world for me. And the same with Sinead O'Connor with Nothing Compares to You mm-hmm. and, and other artists that we've spoken about. You know, there's this there's I think it becomes so personal, um, but it really speaks to the power of his work that, you know, you can bring a different voice to the equation and, and it can just uh, completely transform like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And did you her tweet Mariah's tweet? You know, she said she was devastated. She doesn't know how she's going to get over it. They were in they were in conversation as she was transitioning out of the relationship with Tommy Mottola. Oh, he yeah. was trying to get a lot of people to come on the bandwagon with him as he was leaving his record label. He was trying to get Lenny. He was trying to get Mariah. She you know. said that he was a real confidant. I mean, this is so silly, but she said um, when she was debating whether or not to be a judge on American Idol, which she regrets, mm-hmm. um, Prince was the one that she called and asked for um, like a final uh, final say, if you will. She said, I'm, I'm not sure I'm about to sign this. And, mm-hmm. and he said he thought it was a good idea and she should do it. Um, yeah. So well, it's interesting. Well, there was a lot involved in. No, in no, I'm not. Transpired. I'm not saying he was the. Was, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. I'm not saying he gave a bad call. It's just I think it just shows the 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 depth of their connection. Yeah. and their relationship that you know they were still very much in touch. Clearly, well, the way that people trusted his wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, he had this ability, in the industry, in the industry, and also in life too. And and I, this is something I want to say as we're beginning to close out is that he had this uncanny ability to be able to see equations out further than you and I could be able to see them. He could see. Um, cause and effect. Well, don't speak for me. Well, (laughs) when I say you and I, I use that very loosely, Brendan, because we all know of your psychic abilities. Um, But he could, you know, he was the first person to, he was the first artist to really jump on the idea of independently distributing your own records about online distribution. What he was doing with online was crazy. He was already starting online stuff in like 1994 and giving away tracks, you know, as the gold experience was coming out. And he was still playing with that up until just when he died. His most recent work was an exclusive on title. Yep. Yep. On title. He was a a part of, of that collective. He also had his own NPG music. Club, right? Well, uh, that was the real innovative yeah, thing back in the day. He had his own iTunes, but you know, isn't that interesting? I mean, this is always such a debate, and it's on the one hand really incredible to see how he would try and realize that distribution possibility on his end, but at the same time, I wonder what that experience was like for the fans. I mean, for you, you were following along with this journey. I would, I would imagine that to be a frustrating experience. There's so much work for the fans to hunt down his material. Yeah, was that annoying to you, or did so, you respect that? Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about this. This is one of the places where I started to lose him a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I was frustrated. I did respect his choice to do that, but it did make it a little bit more difficult for a person like me. I mean, you and I used to like to go to Tower Records and go pick up the album. It was a, a ritual. It was a thing that you did. You, you know, you had to make the trip on the, on, what, they, they would come out on Friday, right? Or was it Tuesday? Oh, I think it was when Tuesday or Wednesday, I can't even I think. fucking remember anymore. Isn't that I terrible? I think you would go and pick it up. Yeah. And unwrap it, and that Tuesdays. was part of the experience for me. Definitely and Tuesdays. As things got more and more technologically, you know, whacked out, and and everything became decentralized in terms of distributing the albums, it did get a little bit more difficult for me, and I did sort of lose him, and it made me a little bit frustrated, you know. Uh, um, and maybe that separates me from a normal fan and a super fan. I mean, I still was listening, and there's songs that he has with his messages, especially in his later life. There's a song 
that we can just briefly mention the song Colonize Mind from 2006's Lotus Flower, where he brings up issues like evolution and he brings up issues like raising a, chi- a child with one mother or one father and what his views are, I believe, colored from the strict religious doctrine that he was trying to follow that differ from what I agree with, but at the end of the day, I can respect that that's his viewpoint, and also jive with the overarching theme of things, which is that we're being led down a road where we're concerning ourselves with superficial, worldly things that don't matter and getting in the way of what our moral compass is. Was his divorce and and, or relationship, you know, closing with Maite was that that was around the time of him discovering um, Jehovah's Witness as a as a religious path for him. Right. Yeah. I think it was Larry Graham from from um, from Sly and the Family Stone that joined the new power generation and really introduced him to to Jehovah's Witness and um, and he really started to turn down that way after that introduction. Yeah, we've talked about that duality, but I think it's so interesting when you hear him speak as well, because you have someone who was doing this remarkable work, like we were saying around gender play, and then I was hearing him speak about his philosophy and religion, and he was talking about the word inspiration and talking about this um, this patriarchal view of my father's father and his father's father leading to the ultimate father being God. And it was such a gendered perspective. And I just, I, I couldn't help but notice how interesting it is that we have somebody who was, you know, looking at the world differently and, and, and was imagining, you know, a whole other set of possibilities. And at the same time, I, I felt like uh, adopting such a specific um I don't know. I'm not yeah, gender well. central, like sort of black and white, do yeah. binary central. Yeah, and that's it's really one of the reasons, strange. That's one of the things that's sort of like where we started to part ways a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I still believed in him and supported him. You know, but there, once he started talking about stuff like that, I started to lose lose a little bit. But you know, so we agree to disagree. Sure. You know? I guess it's just for how does how is that circle squared for him? You know, it's like how do you? It's just it's fascinating. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. You know what I mean? And um, we're going to see how it plays out and we're going to see what the overall the overarching uh, lessons that we've learned from his catalog are going to be. Hopefully we'll continue to learn more. Yeah. I mean, hopefully as his music lives, you know. Yeah. Can we close out with one one final track? Is that Absolutely. cool? Okay, so this last track, and I saved it for the last because it's my absolute favorite track from him. Um, it's from, it's a song about mortality and about reincarnation. It's a song about being sometimes misunderstood and wanting people to hear you. Um, it's the third single from 1995's The Gold Experience, and then the song is Dolphin. Gold Experience was his first full album um, for Warner as the symbol that, you know, that he was known as. Um, and it followed the success of his number one hit, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, which is about Maite. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had been reborn with this new pared down, new power generation that was smaller um, and 
now this new big gigantic arena rock sound and the part the clip of this song that i isolated for everybody to hear is this amazing guitar solo right after the bridge um and it brings me to tears every single time i hear it it brings me to tears it's the most important it's like one of the most important pieces of music in my life wow um i i can just feel the heart in it and and the lyrics to this song how how beautiful do the words have to be before they conquer every heart how will you know if I'm even in the right key, if you make me stop before I start. And he's talking about wanting, um, wanting to come back after he dies as a dolphin and dolphins, um, use echolocation. They use sound to communicate. He uses sound to communicate. And if he, di- and if he stops swimming, he's, he's going to, to die. Right. He has to continue to move forward mm. and to use sound. So it's like, would, would it be easier to understand me if I, if I came back in this form? Would it, that be a more perfect form for me? Would people hear what I'm trying to say? Would people receive the lessons that I'm trying to teach? If I was in a more suitable form somehow, how beautiful do I have to make it for it to be able to reach you for it to reach everybody and man i mean like yeah yeah that's really powerful yeah yeah that's why i love him yeah and that's what a loss this has been for me brendan absolutely i can only imagine but i again i mean i hope that as the world is really celebrating him right now i hope that our understanding and appreciation continues to grow and evolve yeah and i hope that as we're talking about this and as people are discovering all over again the you know the the pantheon of amazing albums and the 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 volumes and volumes of stories that are out there that they begin to discover and they you, they read between the lines and they pick up the lessons and maybe we'll get to that place that he calls the dawn the you know yeah i i have to say i mean not to I just you know you mentioned bringing yourself to tears and I you know for me the the moment when all of this happened you know the the day after he died I found myself literally at 5:30 in the morning crying because the night before the cast of the color purple on Broadway had done a, a, a tribute that Jennifer Hudson led but actually um, the part that really brought me to tears was the first verse and chorus was led by uh, an actress named Cynthia Erivo and she sings just that, that first hit of Purple Rain, and it just, literally 5.30 in the morning, I just started crying, and I thought, wow, that's what has just happened, yeah. right? Yeah. That's the power of what's just happened. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's all there there can be said about that, my darling. <laughs> there are so many songs that we didn't really get to touch on, and mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll throw more on the you know, on the on, on the, the EP. on the EP, except we're not really going to be posting an official one because his music's not available, not on, available Spotify. on Spotify. But as I said, everything is available for purchase. It's all available for for legal download and purchase. You can find it in stores, on Amazon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I encourage everybody to go out, take a piece of this. It's a huge piece of me. It's a huge key to understanding my perspective on this show. Absolutely. And me as a person. Well, this has been a real tribute. (laughs) Um, Are you satisfied? I'm satisfied. Thanks for sharing this with me, Brendan. Oh my gosh. I feel, I feel blessed and, uh, you know, thankful that we got to, got to go there and that I finally was able to really just start to understand the tip of the iceberg that is uh, the artistry of the artist. Prince. Bye everybody. Bye.
If you like our show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are hot. And if you really like our show, we'd love a rating and a review. You can find us on Twitter at Back on Track Show, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and all of your favorite ways of time. <laughs> we love to hear from you. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify and check out all of our Mixtape playlists. And if you're outraged that your favorite track didn't make the list, visit us at www.backontrackshow.com and let us have it. You know, we'll tell you what we think, honey. All right, we're done. Peace.